When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Thanks very much for stopping by, and if this is your first time listening to this podcast, I hope you'll listen to the other episodes in the Franco-Dutch War, and that you'll familiarise yourself with the era and place what you're about to hear in more context. Everyone else, thanks again for putting your faith in me to cover a conflict as sprawling and as widely ranging as the Franco-Dutch War. And thanks also for talking about me and spreading the word across the various channels. I really, really appreciate it. And to be honest, I couldn't get this podcast out to as wide an audience as it reaches, if not for your guys' help. So keep it up. Remember, be fit when you're thinking of ways to support this podcast. And a huge, huge thank you to those who have already signed up and become history friends. And by that I mean, pledged a small amount to this podcast each month to keep me ticking over. We are nearly at the threshold where I begin to offer a free t-shirt and perhaps even a free book to you guys every quarter or so. I haven't really figured this all out yet, but when I do, I'll be the first to let you know. As I record this, I am also working on a very important other special that you'll only really discover when the time comes. By that I mean on our fifth anniversary. That's right, I'm going to keep on teasing you every single week until... Eventually, the time comes when the scales fall off and you see for yourself what I've been planning. It is my humble opinion that you'll be both surprised and delighted. So, if you want to thank me in advance for doing all that work, giving a tiny bit every month will really go a long way. As I said, when I get to 10 more subscribers, I will do a free giveaway of some kind. And we're nearly at 10, so anyone else, jump right in and a free t-shirt could be yours. I really can't justify doing this plug every single week, but I managed to somehow anyway. So thanks very much for your patience, guys. And thanks so much for being the good history friends that you are. Okay, so let's start with this next installment of the Franco-Dutch War. Welcome to the Franco-Dutch War, Episode 7. Here we examine the final steps which were made towards the signing of the Treaty of Dover, as well as what that treaty meant for the fortunes of Britain, France and the Dutch. We take a bit of time to assess the Earl of Arlington's role in the whole scheme, 
and we encounter some amusing details regarding the Duke of Buckingham and a young William of Orange. This is a rather packed episode, as you might be able to tell, so without any further ado, let's begin. I will now take you to May 1670, where a very special relation was just about to land in the same place where Charles's restoration story began a decade before, the unassuming coastal town of Dover. Friendship hath the skill and observation of the best physician, the diligence and vigilance of the best nurse, and the tenderness and patience of the best mother. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon. Sixteenth of May, sixteen seventy, Charles the Second believed that he could see it. As he tried to throw his eyes forward, he heard the reassuring confirmation that indeed sails had been spotted. They could be none other than the flotilla of French ships carrying his sister. Charles was barely able to contain himself. Minette, as she was affectionately known, had always been his favourite sister. Now with the cooling of the relationship between Charles and his brother James, Minette was even in the running for favourite sibling. Yet it wasn't merely her visit which excited the now nearly 40-year-old king. For many months and through questionable means, he and a select few ministers had orchestrated a breathtaking plot, aimed at reviving British fortunes and emerging on the winning side. This was the Treaty of Dover, and though it was a deep secret, Charles's closest ministers knew that Minette travelled with a purpose. By the time she left the country, it was anticipated, Britain would be securely tied to France, and Charles would commit his kingdom to aid that of his cousins. It was surely a gamble, but as his decade of rule had already demonstrated, Charles II of the House of Stuart had never been adverse to trying his luck. How would all this come to pass? We have seen the years of tension between Britain and the Dutch, and the winding episodes of insult and competition which led to their second war. That war had been intended to restore British prestige and enable Charles to make a name for himself on the world stage as a conquering king. But all the subjects could surely remember by its end was the humiliation at Medway, where Dutch ships freely pillaged and devastated any British vessel in sight. At the same time, the war had been immensely frustrating for Charles as Parliament had proved deeply hesitant and suspicious to commit any great amount of funds to the war effort, with the result that Charles's court was constantly running short of money. Charles could lament that the true reason British ships had sat like defenceless ducks in their dockyards was because no money had been voted to pay for a new campaign, and there wasn't even enough to pay the sailors to man the ships. In the aftermath of the disaster, Charles no doubt felt his sense of honour burning at the shame which had been incurred, but which stung worse was Parliament's insistence on blaming others, the Earl of Clarendon, for instance, when it was they that should shoulder the responsibility. 
Parliament decried mismanagement and insisted on implementing edicts on religious practice and tolerance, which went against Charles's principles as a man of the continent, deep down. Charles may have been one of the last monarchs of this era not to associate one's religious persuasion with one's loyalty, but he was going very much against the grain. Surrounded by capable ministers, all of whom had a distinct job to do or a sphere of influence within court, Charles perhaps believed that he could dispense with Parliament whinging in his ear about the war. He already knew who was to blame for its disasters, and he was not about to let that institution jeopardise Britain's chances ever again. Thus a critically important piece of the puzzle of the Treaty of Dover was Charles's indignation at Parliament's blundering, greed and pettiness. Too often do historians of this era overlook Charles in favour of his more vibrant and exuberant cousin, but by ignoring Charles they miss a key part of the story. One historian who buys into the Louis the Manipulator idea was Orr Hutton, who provided us with great insight into the treaty in previous episodes. See if you can pick out what's wrong about the following statement from Hutton's article, The Making of the Secret Treaty of Dover, 1668-1670, which he wrote in 1986. Hutton wrote, The simple truth was that the strength of Louis's personality and military resources was so great, and the distrust between English, Dutch and Spanish so profound, that it seems almost inevitable that one of the latter powers would have made a separate deal with him at some stage. Almost accidentally, it turned out to be England, whose search for double insurance against isolation led it by stages into an offensive alliance. The corpses which filled the ditches of the Netherlands and were washed up on Dutch and English coasts in the conflict which followed were sacrifices to the ambitions of the Sun King. It may be tempting to put all that occurred down to a single man or indeed a simple truth, But, as we've surely gathered by now, the diplomacy of this era was anything but simple. Think of the manipulation Charles engaged in to almost force Johann de Witt to agree to the Triple Alliance. To do this, he had to understand that Dutch statesman's deepest fears and insecurities about his own position. Think about de Witt's own moves to ensure the Dutch Republic against France. He had signed numerous alliances with France, yet he continued to see Louis as a danger and remained convinced of the need to pressure the Sun King where possible. Think again of the complicated and contradictory steps which led to the Treaty of Dover itself. The amount of stop-start negotiating and confusing messages emerging out of the reams of letters which British diplomats pinged across Europe have led to a great degree of actual confusion in the historical record. This is why we see historians create different narratives, and why we can even detect a palpable exasperation in some others. Why couldn't they just keep it simple and make the darn treaty? I feel some of them asking. Therefore, while Hutton has steered us well so far, it'd be downright wrong to attribute everything which follows to Louis's magnetic personality. Every player had a role, and every role created ripples which led to further incident. Louis XIV of France may have created some of the biggest splashes, but many of the ripples which extended across Europe were picked up by British agents, acting first under the orders of Charles, and after that under the instructions of the Earl of Arlington. This fact, at least, is acknowledged by Hutton when he noted that Upon a closer reading of all the sources, one councillor looms larger than all the rest. Henry Bennett, Baron Arlington, the Senior Secretary of State. 
He attended Parliament, the Privy Council and the latter's Committee for Foreign Affairs, in reality the inner ring discussing all policy. And he did this more assiduously than any of Charles's other close associates. To foreign ambassadors, men seeking posts and others requiring privileges or pardons, Arlington's favour was above all to be courted and his opposition feared. In 1668-70, his clients secured every important foreign embassy and the posts of junior secretary of state and joint treasurer of the navy. All these men were relatively young and relatively able and selected for these attributes. Arlington was one of the principal negotiators with the French in late 1667 and the architect of the Triple Alliance. Charles made him one of the circle which conducted the secret diplomacy with Louis and he did more actual talking during these meetings than anyone else. At Dover the French made him a present twice the value of those given to the other English commissioners. The period of 1668-70 to could thus be described as the Ministry of Arlington, which it never is, with much more justice than that from 1660-67 to can be called the Ministry of Clarendon, which it generally is. So if Arlington was Charles's instrument, putting into practical use his monarch's frustrations and ensuring that his will be done in secret across Europe, then that must mean he wholeheartedly approved of Charles's policy, right? Well, not necessarily. Arlington was what you would call a late bloomer where an alliance with France was concerned. This was because he not only possessed an anti-French and pro-Spanish bias since his youth, but he married a Dutch noblewoman in the years before. With his new Dutch wife in tow, who incidentally was a distant relative of the House of Orange, Arlington seemed like the least likely candidate for Charles to imbue with such grave responsibilities. This was the opinion of Morris D. Lee in his article The Earl of Arlington and the Treaty of Dover, written in 1961, just as historians were beginning to pull back the layers of the 17th century diplomacy and controversy. Lee noted that, a logical consequence of Arlington's desire for friendship with Spain was that he was very anti-French, so much so that Louis XIV refused to have him appointed as ambassador. Arlington's emergence as Charles's chief advisor in foreign affairs in summer 1667 was regarded in Paris as a defeat for French diplomacy. The French ambassador in London gloomily remarked that Arlington would join with the devil to ruin an enemy. For the next two years, the French correspondence was full of complaint about Arlington, often very bitter. He, it seemed, was the sole obstacle to the Anglo-French alliance. In the instructions in August 1668 for Charles Colbert, who was being sent to London as ambassador, it was said that If English affairs were today in other hands than those of the said Lord, the league between their majesties would be very easy to negotiate and would almost conclude itself. This of course begs the really obvious question of how Arlington came to arrive at such a U-turn and how historians have come to associate him as the prime mover behind the Treaty of Dover. Morris D. Lee was one such historian who sought to investigate the truth behind the treaty, and whether Arlington was the roaring pro-French warmonger, history seems to have deemed him. In the process, Lee uncovered substantial evidence that Arlington, rather than adoring the treaty or an alliance with France, went along with it first out of loyalty to his king, and secondly because it seemed like the best option out of a series of mediocre options. 
Arlington would rather have sided with Spain, but Madrid continued to hesitate when it came to the issue of paying its bills, a fact which Arlington drew immense frustration from, as what he really desired was a strengthening of the Triple Alliance and further insurance against Anglo-Dutch competition. Rather than a conspiratorial statesman then, Arlington should instead be viewed as a man who resigned himself to his least favourite policy because he accepted it was the best line open to his country. As Lee put it, It was the view of both Arlington and the Dutch that Spain, as the chief benefactor of the Triple Alliance, ought to pay its bills. Spain's myopia in this matter was extremely exasperating to Arlington. Charles, on the other hand, not convinced of utility or even the possibility of permanent friendship with the Dutch, wanted to resume bargaining with France in the expectation that the recent English diplomatic successes would entice Louis to make a better offer. And it must be said that there was a case for Charles's policy. Spain's persistent refusal to subsidise the Triple Alliance meant that maintaining the combination would be costly to England. The Dutch were by no means reliable allies and would do nothing to make the alliance more attractive by conceding a favourable commercial treaty. Alliance with France, on the other hand, meant a French subsidy and possibly the weakening or elimination of the Dutch as commercial rivals. We could of course ask why Charles didn't simply fire Arlington and bring a more pro-French minister into his confidence, such as the Duke of Buckingham. Quite simply, Charles couldn't fire Arlington because this would send a clear message to Europe. Lee perceptively noted that Arlington's hostility to France was well known, and his dismissal would make the new king's direction in foreign policy immediately apparent. So for this reason, Arlington's tenure of office was more secure than that Earl actually thought it was. On the other hand, Charles also couldn't conceal the negotiations from Arlington for obvious reasons. Arlington was the one man in England whose acquiescence in the alliance was essential from the beginning, and in view of Arlington's pronounced views on the subject, Charles may well have concluded that extreme measures on his part were necessary to ensure that acquiescence. So well known were Arlington's views, in fact, that when negotiations between Minette and Charles began to heat up, Arlington was urged to send a reassuring note to Minette, promising he would do his duty rather than torpedo the emerging treaty. In June 1669, Arlington wrote Minette a somewhat grudging letter, stating, I have been all my life a good servant of the king, my master, and such I will die by the grace of God, and I would not for all the wealth of the world act any other part than that of a good Englishman. While Charles sought to assure Minette that her efforts would not be in vain, Arlington seems in actual fact to have tried to slow negotiations down after all, or at least tried to find a way to prevent Britain having to go to war. Arlington did understand that regular subsidies were a welcome change from the demanding diplomacy of London's Triple Alliance partners, but he never believed that the caveat of a European war was worth those subsidies. Thus we come to the Catholic Conversion Clause, perhaps the most incendiary aspect of the treaty to some historians, who discovered it in the early 1800s. Last time we saw Louis's tough bargaining. If Charles did not agree to a war, Louis would not agree to any kind of treaty with London. To circumvent this, Arlington and Charles attempted not to exclude the war clause, but to delay its outcome. The Catholic Conversion Clause enabled this because 
Although Charles accepted the war as the price to be paid for the French willingness to ally with England rather than Holland, and although Charles was certainly more pro-war because he expected the anticipated victory to improve his political position at home, both king and statesman appreciated the importance of controlling the time frame. Until Charles converted, it was upheld, a war with the Dutch could not be had, because the Stuart king would be too distracted from the possible fallout which may have occurred. Wait until the conversion was made, the opposition dealt with and the whole thing blown over, before any war with the Dutch was made, Charles said. Charles consistently made it clear that unless the conversion clause was included, Louis would have to launch his attack on the Dutch all by himself. Once the French accepted this clause, Arlington persuaded Charles to resist his sister's blandishments and insist on its retention. Thus we come to the incredible conclusion that perhaps the most controversial of all the aspects of the Treaty of Dover was in fact Arlington's best chance for ensuring peace. If Charles never intended to become a Catholic, a prospect which historians have since debated many times over, then the clause can even be viewed as a carrot which would appeal to Louis on a personal and spiritual level. The deeply Catholic French king was hardly going to argue that his cousin's religious persuasion didn't matter, while it also gave Charles a level of freedom to delay or block indefinitely, a policy which he was not yet ready to pursue. So long as Arlington was positioned as he was, perhaps the determined statesman hoped that he could use the conversion clause to prevent the war from ever taking place. If Charles never publicly converted, then according to the Treaty of Dover, there could be no war. It was this treaty which Minette carried with her to Dover in mid-May 1670, and in a sense it was hugely beneficial to Charles. Not only had he ensured that he had the final say on when a war with his Dutch enemy would break out, but he also now had the alliance which he had wanted since he... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Returned to rule his kingdom ten years before. 
Not only that, but soon he would see his sister for the first time in many years, and in the treacherous circumstances which the 17th century helped to cultivate, it was perhaps a relief to know that you would soon be face to face with the person whom you could truly put your trust and faith in. When we view it like this, it's not hard to imagine that Charles believed he was acting in the interests of both his house and his kingdom, bypassing the bloated institution of parliament and implementing an active policy where it truly mattered. The sails of his sister's ships, in Charles's mind, could not sail fast enough. Though their correspondence had been largely a private affair, Minette's arrival was to be anything but. It was a great event, the visit of a royal and a French royal family member to boot. Perhaps because the true nature of her visit had to be disguised from his ministers and the country, Minette's visit was celebrated arguably way out of proportion to what many believed the visit represented. If it was simply a case that the king's sister had come to visit, then why the hurrying of the MPs to Dover, the massive retinue accompanying the Dutch and French ambassadors as they followed suit, or the elaborate decorations which were in place to welcome Minette home. Some officials were indeed suspicious that all was not as it seemed. The whole visit seemed one of a diplomatic purpose rather than a mere family reunion. The Venetian ambassador wrote home regularly that he suspected that secret transactions were afoot, though of course he couldn't prove anything. But in any case, I feel it was quite remarkable that nobody stopped to ask why it was such a big deal. It could be the case that after so many years of bad news, with the king's 40th birthday approaching on top of that, the citizens of the realm were simply in need of some feel-good news at last. One of their own returning from a foreign land served as just such an excuse to be positive and remember the good times, as though the last decade had been anything other than a series of underwhelming disappointments. If Charles aimed at bolstering his people obscuring the truth of the visit and making it all go off without a hitch, he would have to rely on the few select ministers who knew what was really going on. The Duke of Buckingham, incidentally, was not one of these people. Charles had kept him on as a foil to Arlington, in case the Earl tried to amass too much power for himself, but Charles had never gone as far as letting the wild Duke in on the secrets of the treaty. As far as Buckingham was concerned, this was merely a visit from the King's attractive sister, and one which should be celebrated as a great social event, and a chance to forge closer bonds between Britain and France. Buckingham would pursue this idea of closeness like a dog with a bone, and his exclusion from the true developments of the Treaty of Dover would come to have devastating consequences for the plans of Arlington and Charles. For the moment though, the mood was all business. Once Minette landed with the treaty secretly tucked away, the unspoken plan was to get down to signing it as fast as possible. Indeed, on the 22nd of May, 1670, with Arlington, Clifford, member of the C of the Cabal, and Charles in tow, this was done. There could be now no going back. All Minette now had to do was carry the treaty back to France, and Charles would be bound to France just as he was bound to England. Charles's one trump card was the conversion clause which he could use to delay Louis despite Minette's pleas that her brother remove any articles which might block an Anglo-French accord. Minette was thoroughly convinced of the necessity in making war on the Dutch, and believed in her heart that an Anglo-French alliance was the surest way to increase British prestige and power. She was, after all, married into the French royal family. With the business finished, 
Word was received from Louis at Dunkirk as he perused his newly acquired forts, taken from the Spanish during the War of Devolution. Louis warmly recommended that Minette stay with her brother for another fortnight or so, a prospect which brought her and Charles great joy, and which outraged Monsieur, Louis's brother Philip, and of course Minette's husband. As though he had a new lease on life and almost right in his kingdom again, Charles, James and Minette spent the next week or so socialising, spending money they didn't have and commenting on the business of the day. The Dutch, Charles's ministers, French customs and the suffocating confines of Louis's court were all favourite topics. The Stuart family, limited since their previous years of exile, familial, tragedy and the recent death of their mother in France, nonetheless presented a strong and quite unified picture. It must have been especially poignant for Charles, who would likely spend his exile wondering if the family would ever be united again. As they went from banquet to theatre to party, it finally seemed as though everything had worked out, as though despite the disagreements and turmoils of the previous years, the British people were happy with their king and his family. Charles's 40th birthday was celebrated with much fanfare on the 29th of May, as was the decade anniversary of the Stuart family's return to power in Britain. The time for Charles went far too quickly. Before he knew it, the two were exchanging presents and were about to depart once more. Charles gave Minette money for her travels and funds to build a church in their mother's honour, while Minette offered one of her many jewels to Charles in return. Passing over the priceless stones, Charles infamously requested to be introduced to one of Minette's ladies-in-waiting instead. Minette, charged as she was with the lady in question's future, turned her brother down. But Charles didn't have to wait long. Arlington would soon arrange the passage of this lady-in-waiting, a Miss Louise de Corral, to England, and into Charles's bed. Charles's previous mistresses had had links to the Duke of Buckingham, so it was well within Arlington's interest to exercise his influence where this new mistress was concerned. Not even the king's bed, it seemed, was free from the politics of court. Though she wowed all she met, and though her beauty was reported to be quite something, Minette's radiance hid a terrible secret. She, like her other late siblings, was soon to die before her prime. As Charles kissed her goodbye, reportedly going back two or three times as he couldn't bear to see her go, he could not have known that he would never see his sweet sister again. She had reminded him of the good old days, when kingship and rule seemed like powerful dreams rather than a divisive nightmare, and when all seemed possible even as exile sapped one's morale. As soon as she left Dover on the 3rd of June 1670, Manette began to deteriorate. Only a few days after writing her first letter in English to her brother, an exercise which has to be read to be fully appreciated, Minette was complaining of horrendous pain. On the night of the 30th of June, surrounded by her closest friends and receiving her last rites, Henrietta Anne, the Duchess of Orléans, died. The official cause was given as cholera, but the generally accepted view these days is that a burst duodenal ulcer was the cause of the infection, which, going undetected, had developed into peritonitis. Some cried poison, claiming that Philip had arranged the poisoning of his wife as revenge for his favourite, or indeed that his favourite had orchestrated the whole affair. 
Either way, with Minette gone, it remained to communicate the unbelievable news to her brother, who couldn't possibly have imagined that such a tragedy were possible after such a tremendous visit. Receiving the news from a doctor, who had travelled under strict orders from Louis directly from Manette's deathbed to Charles's court, Charles was apoplectic and cried out with grief, Monsieur is a villain! Convinced that Louis's brother had been behind it all, before retreating into his chambers, indisposed by such a powerful feeling of grief and depression that he was unable to make any public appearances for at least a month, the longest recorded absence of his rule. Yet if Minette's death wounded Charles, it did not deter him from pursuing his latest policy. Armed with the knowledge that only Louis' signature was what was needed, Charles became less interested in cooperating with Parliament and became more used to the practice of duping its MPs, as he had duped his own ministers for the last few years. The duping did not end with Louis' signing of the Treaty of Dover either. Once it became clear that a level of closeness was developing following Minette's untimely death, and once it became doubly clear that both Charles and Louis were unified in their grief for her passing, it was the Duke of Buckingham, rather than the Earl of Arlington, who would serve up one of the most amusing, but also perhaps the most damaging proposals in diplomacy at this time. Blindly oblivious to the Treaty of Dover, which had already been signed, Buckingham suggested to Charles that, upon his trip to France in July 1670, he would arrange for a secret treaty to be signed between Britain and France, which would grant London various subsidies in exchange for a British commitment to make war against the Dutch alongside Paris. This is where historians tend to get confused, because though this treaty that Buckingham was about to arrange was still a secret one, it would become known to all five members of the Cabal, and most of Charles's inner circle, in comparison to the original Treaty of Dover, which only Clifford and Arlington of that grouping knew of. The fact that a new treaty was being secretly negotiated where one had already existed was a great source of amusement to both Charles and Arlington, since the latter never missed an opportunity to have a private joke at his rival's expense. While it may have seemed somewhat hilarious to Arlington to see Buckingham venture to Louis' court and present this groundbreaking treaty to the French king as though one didn't already exist, the results of this new treaty were actually more damaging than they may appear on the surface. In the first place, because the cabal contained a few anti-Catholic gentlemen, Buckingham foremost among them, Charles couldn't include the Catholic conversion clause. This of course meant that Charles couldn't delay Louis' war with the Dutch indefinitely, while it also meant that the real secret of the secret Treaty of Dover was obscured by this new version, which didn't even mention Catholicism and instead promised more money to London as a generous subsidy. Louis may have been miffed that no impetus was on Charles to convert anymore, but he also recognised that his opportunity had come to impose by some curious diplomacy a way for Charles to commit to his own timetable of a war with the Dutch, and this is noted by Morris D. Lee when he said, If Arlington really hoped to avoid war by means of the Catholic clause, he was quickly undeceived. On this point, Louis XIV was more far-seeing than either Charles or Arlington. At least as early as April 1670, Louis must have realised what a valuable weapon his cousin of England was thrusting into his hands. He ceased to haggle over details and became very anxious to get the treaty completed. And in fact, Arlington and his master discovered, after they had signed the treaty, that they had miscalculated in several directions. 
Obviously, the Treaty of Dover could not be made public. It could not even be shown to the anti-Catholic members of Charles's inner ring, like Buckingham and Ashley. So a second treaty had to be negotiated, which afforded Arlington a good deal of amusement at Buckingham's expense, but which also wrecked the timing device, since the Catholic clause could not appear. So it was agreed that the war would begin in the spring of 1672. A few more bits of Dutch territory were promised to England in return for this, and Arlington was able to prevent Louis from reneging on his payments for Charles's declaration of Catholicism, an event which both parties now recognised was most unlikely to take place. Arlington's efforts to stave off the war increased in tempo and variety in the year 1671, but they all proved vain. Without any practical way to block Louis' war, Arlington and Charles would have quickly realised that they had finally lost the diplomatic battle with France. Buckingham's new Secret Treaty of London, as it was called, was signed on the 21st of December, 1670, and now that Britain would be irreversibly tied to France when the hammer fell on the Dutch, Arlington would have precious little room to manoeuvre. He would have to pull in his diplomatic favours abroad and do his best to prepare Britain for a war, which he must have known deep down it was not ready for. It didn't help, of course, that the French were bitterly disliked in the country at large by this point. Even the merchant community, whose opinion Arlington valued so highly, was now more anti-French than anti-Dutch, according to the information he was receiving from his agents. In future episodes, we'll see that by the end of 1671, Arlington again tried to shake the Anglo-French alliance apart by reviving the idea that France pay over some 330 grand to England in lieu of activating their share of the combined fleet, a plan which Louis promptly rejected. Not only did Arlington fail in all these things, but he also miscalculated the attitude of Spain, the one with whom he always wanted to be friendly, and whom he wanted to use as a counterweight to France. Arlington wasn't necessarily to blame for all these failings, though. To give credit where it was due, even as the Anglo-French negotiations were ongoing, in July 1670, Arlington's agents had brought about a second Anglo-Spanish treaty, which left the door open to English trade in Spanish America recognised the English title to Jamaica, and banned privateering beyond the line. Two months later, the governor of Jamaica, who had connived at the privateering at Spain's expense in years past, was recalled. But his successor did not arrive in Jamaica until June 1670, and in the meantime, the English privateer Henry Morgan launched his infamous raid on Portobello and on Panama, sinking and grabbing all the loot he could find there. The Spanish government was naturally incensed at this. Arlington hadn't foreseen the potential for Spain to lean more towards the Dutch side, as the Anglo-French closeness became one of Europe's worst-kept secrets. Arlington had assumed that Spain would be as satisfied as he was with the French promise to respect the Treaty of à la Chapelle that had ended the War of Devolution, even though he learned from his ambassador in France that the French would be only too happy to break the treaty if Spain gave them grounds. As we'll see, and we will come back to Arlington's ailing diplomacy in the future, efforts to pressure Madrid into towing the British line would not succeed, with the result that Arlington emerged by 1672 on the opposite side to his Spanish counterweight than he had originally anticipated or wanted to be. 
In view of such developments, would it be fair to say that the historical consensus regarding Arlington, that he was an anti-Dutch, pro-French deceiver, is in need of reappraisal? Morris D. Lee believed that there was much need for a re-examination of Arlington, commenting that, It would seem, then, that a revision of the traditional assessment of Arlington's role in English foreign policy is in order. Arlington did not favour the War of 1672, which he believed to be a risky gamble. As Charles Colbert, the French ambassador to Britain, wrote in March of 1672 when the war broke out, of all of Charles's ministers, Arlington had always been the least enthusiastic for it. Arlington never wanted the French alliance. When Charles made it unmistakable that he was determined to have it, Arlington outwardly acquiesced, as the servant he had no other choice, but he did not passively acquiesce. He did his best to sabotage the negotiations, and failing that, to make England the controlling partner in the alliance by means of the Catholic device, a move which can be best described as being too clever by half. Arlington's weakness as a statesman was not that he was a time-server without a policy of his own, not that his policy was unpatriotic or immoral or foolish, rather his weakness lay in his failure to foresee the consequences of some of his own actions, and in his inability to convince the king either of the rightness of his policy, or of the fact that Charles's policy was built in part, at least, on the misconception that it was France, rather than England, who had the choice of allies. So Arlington was a failure, but his failures were not altogether his fault, and perhaps in the words of the old song, he's more to be pitied than censured. If we could level the accusation that Arlington didn't foresee the consequences of his actions, what could we say about Charles? Basing our judgments of the British king in 1670, when an alliance with France seemed to make so much sense, it is easy on the one hand to sympathise with the beleaguered Charles. He had, to be fair, tried everything else. He had been on opposite sides to Louis, he had treated with the Dutch, and he had given both powers the runaround in the past. Now he genuinely believed that his best chance for success and prestige lay in a solid alliance with the seemingly all-powerful France. His error in judgement shouldn't hide the fact that he was trying to get the best deal for Britain and his house, or that he had to deal with some very complex issues at the time, not to mention grieving the loss of his sister. At the same time though, not even Jenny Oglo, in my opinion, the historian most gentle on Charles during this period, managed to sugarcoat her words when she described the new departure in Charles's policy. She wrote that, It was the secrecy of the treaty which was so significant. For a king who had intended to be so open and accessible, this was an admission that he must now rule in a different way. His assertion at the restoration that he wanted to rule with his parliament was implicitly denied, and his actions were the forerunner of many later deals, when heads or cabinets of allegedly democratic states commit their nation to action without the full knowledge or full agreement of parliament and people. To modern eyes, the treachery may lie in the design about religion, which so shocked his contemporaries, than in Charles's committing his country to fight a pointless war in which thousands of lives might be lost. Regardless of the parallels with independently-minded ministers acting in the name of their nation, which we may find later on in British history, think Britain's entry into the First World War as a prime example, it is important to remember this very critical point. As much as Charles believed he was acting in his country's best interests, he was not acting with the will of the majority behind him. 
This lack of popular support for the approaching course of action, which Charles was so eager for and which Arlington spent so long trying to wriggle out of, would in time effect a fundamental change in British policy. In the process of making a visit back home was another royal relative, this time a half-Dutchman, William of Orange. Nobody more than William III represented this new policy change. It was one which Charles would in fact live to see realised, as Britain switched determinedly from anti-Dutch to anti-French, at the expense of Louis XIV, and with consequences for European and world history that were nothing less than profound. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.